Our reading this evening is found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, and we're reading verses from verse 16 to the end of that chapter. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, Maybe know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, may the Lord be pleased to bless this portion of his word. We'd be considering verses 26 to 28 this evening, uh, later in the service. 
We read that the Athenians loved to hear anything new so that they could then begin a discussion and dissect the words, dissect the thoughts, and then either come to a place of accepting them or discounting and dismissing of what they had heard. Now, Paul had begun this conversation. It's a discussion. He's not on trial here. The trials will come later when he arrives at Caesarea and at Rome. But here he's in discussion, and he begins by noting an altar that was observable to the citizens in Athens, and it was an altar to an unknown god. And we observed that Paul's concern then was to uh, begin at a point where they shared a common interest, this altar, an unknown God. Well, Paul said, uh, let's look at that and let's, let me talk to you now about, about the God who can be known. There's an account as to how these altars to unknown gods uh, appeared uh, so much in, uh, in Athens. Some 600 years before we read uh, before Paul's time, Athens had been stricken by a terrible plague, and hundreds were ill and dying, and the city grew desperate. The famous poet from Crete, uh, Epimenides, Epimenides um, who is quoted later on by Paul as we look at these verses tonight, uh, devised a, a plan to pacify uh, whatever gods were causing the plague. Obviously, these gods needed to be, to be pacified. They needed to be uh, fed. They needed to be uh, silenced. Uh, so that uh, the plague would, would cease. And so he went to the Areopagus, uh, this place, this hill, and he turned loose a, a flock of sheep. Some said they were black and white sheep. Well, anyway, uh, they were allowed to roam wherever they were in the city freely, and wherever they lay down, there they were to be sacrificed, and then an altar was to be made. And uh, if it was uh, that it was near a temple, uh, that would suggest perhaps that the gods were drawing these animals to them as sacrifices, and if it was near a, a, original, a, a temple already built, well, then it would be sacrificed to that god. But if it died, uh, sat down, and then was sacrificed uh, nowhere near any, any temple or any shrine, uh, an altar would be raised to, to an unknown god. And the thought was that uh, whatever this plague was coming from, whichever gods were unhappy or uh, angry with them, uh, that uh, this would be a way of pacifying. And so it decided to sacrifice the sheep anyway. And then uh, these nameless gods uh, were then uh, worshipped also, although they were not known. So that's something of the background as to perhaps why there were these so many altars to unknown gods. But this was then the means of Paul now introducing uh, in the remaining verses of this. First of all, he talked about the truth about God. And we saw that last week, verses 24 to 25, and then verse 29. And it was simply uh, headed under these three lines of inquiry. First of all, the God who is to be worshipped does not live in temples. God cannot be contained. Now Solomon had realized that, we quoted from 1 Kings 8 last week. Although the temple was built, David had uh, gathered the resources, Solomon built the temple, yet Solomon realized that God couldn't be contained within that building. It was a place where people could come to, to, to praise God and to, to express their petitions and concerns. 
in personal life and in human life. But uh, in another sense, it couldn't contain, couldn't contain the God uh, that is to be worshipped. And the second point that Paul makes here, uh, as he outlines the truth about God, was that you, he does not depend on us. You do not need to, to keep pacifying him. You do not keep feeding him. You need not keep to keep him happy. He, he cannot be controlled, because that was part of the point. You, you try to make, to mollify the gods, so you would sacrifice to them that they might bless you. Or you might sacrifice to them uh, so that they would perhaps uh, not be angry with you. Well, you cannot control God. You cannot contain him. You cannot control him. And then the third point, we looked at this last week, was that um, uh, there were these idols that were made of metal, gold, silver, stone. And Paul clearly says, you cannot represent God in any form. We're thinking of the second commandment, aren't we? No graven image. So he cannot be contained. He cannot be controlled. And he cannot be copied. And those are the sort of points that Paul tried to get across uh, to the Athenians here. Now, we're moving on tonight to uh, what Paul next developed, the truth about mankind. The truth about human life. Now, some wondered whether Paul uh, was uh, in this conversation with these Athenians. Many of them were philosophers. Epicureans are mentioned. Stoics are mentioned. Intellectuals. Uh, Is Paul changing tack a little bit? Is he trying to ingratiate himself? Is he trying to say, well, you know, I'm not ignorant. I know I can quote poetry. I can quote, uh, you know, I know the philosophers. Was this a way of him trying to uh, get them on his side as he tried to talk about these things? And some say, was Paul looking to philosophy? Was he looking to some sort of wisdom to, to address this company? Well, we saw last week, in the opening statements about who God is, was Paul looking to natural theology? Was he looking to philosophy to help answer that question? But we came to the conclusion, no. What Paul simply did was this. He went back to the early chapters of the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. There you read of God as the creator. There you read of God as made a garden for for that couple to live in, to sustain them. There you read about God creating then the the nations and guiding and leading and uh, the names of the families and all that. And and, and there it is, God creator, God sustainer. And not only that then, but we, we also saw something else, that God has purpose. Life isn't just sort of things that are happening. They're not just happenings. There's a purpose. Oh, if you're not a Christian tonight, and if you say, well, you're an atheist, well, uh, there's no purpose to life. It's all an accident, isn't it? And you say, oh, no, no, my life has purpose. Yeah, yeah, you you think it's got purpose, but if that's the way you're thinking, there's no purpose, because it was an accident, and accidents have no purpose. And although you've made your life uh, a sort of purpose, family, work, community, uh, it's not purpose, really. It's of no value. As a matter of fact, 100 years from now, it doesn't matter whether you lived or not. But God has purpose, and he has purpose for mankind. And this is what we read here then. And in these early chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11, you see God creator, you see God sustainer, but you see also God as 
has purpose in the lives of individuals and in families and in nations. And that's the second point that we come to here, that God has a purpose for humanity. And then the third element, which we could look at on another occasion, is this. That in those early opening chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11, because Paul would speak about it clearly in verse 30 and 31 here, we've read it already this evening, there is judgment. There is judgment. And if you think back to those early chapters of Genesis, there was the expulsion from the garden because of disobedience. That was judgment. But there was also the promise of the deliverer. Verse Gospel promise, Genesis 3, verse 15. Look it up. Also as well then, there was the flood in the days of Noah. That was judgment upon the evil hearts of men and women. And also as well then, there was the destruction of the Tower of Babel, where the languages then were spread across the world. One, that, one, that, that sense of them building this tower so that they could become like God. Destruction, that was judgment. And so what we can see is that Paul speaking to these Athenians, he's not looking to philosophy or natural theology, as some people call it, but he's rooting it in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And especially now this evening, as we come to, to look at the thought as to mankind, what we notice is this in verse 26. Paul now having said that he, God doesn't need anything because he himself gives us gives all men life and breath and everything else, Verse 26 reads, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now before we consider what Paul said regarding mankind, we need uh, to note the prevalent view of the Athenians, the Greeks. Unsurprisingly, the Greeks believed that they were superior as a people to all that had gone before. Now, where have you heard that? So, whatever the previous empires, in terms of their strength and ability, and especially now, academically, intellectually, the Greeks considered themselves, well, more than head and shoulders above the rest. And that's why they spoke of other people whose languages they couldn't understand, as if they were babbling, ba 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 ba. They called them barbarians. And so you're either a Greek or you're a barbarian. And Paul picks this up later. You had the same sort of idea amongst the Jews. Strangely enough, again, uh, the Jews considered themselves to be the nation apart, the nation God had chosen. Well, that follows on in Genesis. After those early chapters, then you have God calling Abraham, the patriarch. And are they again? The Jews and the Gentile dogs. Those beneath us, those below us. And if you look back over civilization, uh, the empires that have risen and the nations that have known a measure of prosperity or strength and economic power, they've always considered themselves to be a cut above the rest. And that's true in Latin America, it's true in, in Asia, uh, with the sort of caste systems and things, and it's, it's also true in the West. You know, the thousand-year reign of a, of, of a great Reich that was coming, or perhaps uh, the British Empire itself. And, and we went uh, uh, to, to inform and to educate and, of course, to uh, impoverish them as we uh, embellished and strengthened our own position. But this idea that we are above, we are above, we are the best. 
Well, the Greeks thought like that. Now, Paul is going to cut straight into that. He cut straight into that. Look what he says. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. How sad that nearly every generation considers itself more advanced, more intelligent, and more cultured. And we're living in a generation like that today. You, you look back on it, uh, whatever generation, you think, we are the best. Now, technologically, that might well be the case. We're not talking the moon now, we're talking Mars now, right? So, uh, we, we're advanced. But really, in terms of our, ourselves, in terms of our understanding of ourselves, our, our care for one another... You have others. The, the prophets of today are, are not the preachers of the gospel. They're the scientists warning uh, of the doom that we're bringing upon the world. And yet Paul records these words then. From one man he has made every nation of men. And that one man, it cannot mean anyone else other than Adam and his wife Eve who were the parents of mankind. So uh, Paul is saying any superior attitude towards others, either as individuals or as nations or races, cannot be defended because we're all alike. Well, of course, there's differentiation in terms of height, in terms of color of skin, in terms of, uh, of background, but we're all alike. And in one sense, that's the, that's the leveler, isn't it? It's one of the sad things, perhaps you, you didn't realize it, some people did, uh, that uh, you can have a, a royal family that can be in disarray, arguing with one another, upset with one another, uh, deceiving one another, lying, cheating, lustful, and you think, no, no, surely not. Well, what's to be surprised about that? Isn't it true of you and your family? Isn't it true of, of others? Isn't it true of us all? And this is what Paul will come to. There's a, there's a fallenness that causes us to fumble uh, with regards to these matters of knowing God. And that was something then uh, that Paul was facing here uh, when he was preaching. Jewish leaders, we know at the time, uh, they were insisting that Gentiles, uh, if they wanted to become believers in the Messiah, had to become Jews first. We, we studied that in chapter 15. This sense, you see, you're a cut above. The unity of the human race. This is the point we're making this evening. There's a unity. Oh, I understand there's a lot of disunity. You, you look at what's happening in, uh, in Ukraine and you think there's disunity. You look at the problems in, in some of the African countries and the civil wars that rage. Not nation against nation. People within a nation. But the biblical truth is there's a unity in the human race. We're all the same. We all are created by the same creator. We all are sustained by the same sustainer. And we all are intended to have fulfill the same purpose for which he originally made us. So any distinctions are peripheral and surface only. Rather than people making gods in human likeness, which is what uh, these Athenians were doing, what Paul is saying, they were making these uh, representations of uh, gods in human form. What Paul was actually pointing them to in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 was this truth. That it was God who made mankind in his image. Male and female. There was, as we mentioned this morning, there was that equality there. Now, uh, certainly then, 
not in the image of God in terms of biology, but in regards to mind and heart and thought and rationale and memory, a cut above, yes, a cut above man, the rest of the rest of created order, but not a cut above in the sense of amongst themselves. Now, how much uh, have you noticed that this is how people think today and feel and respond? Often, it's the circumstances of life and how, what, how they think about it, how they feel about it, and how they respond to it that causes so much of the pain and sorrow in the world. So that perhaps a, a president can feel that it's his right to increase the borders of his territory. Because he's superior. Because uh, they have the power to do so. Well, what we read next is not only of the unity of the human race, but also as well, we read of the astounding fact that in so few words, we have the whole subject of human history and human geography described. Look at the words there in verse 26, the end of verse 26. For from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Now, in a nutshell, that's the whole of human history, the whole of human geography, described in a few words. Mention of set times and exact places. What Paul is saying, that the God who is the creator, the God who is the sustainer, is the God who determines. As a matter of fact, isn't that what we read? And he determined the time set. And here we come to an important subject matter. There is human responsibility and human freedom. But in one sense, whatever you're moving, whatever you're achieving, whenever you, what time you live or whatever, in one sense, that's, that's, Determined by a greater being than you. And so what we're able to say about this is, is very clear. The Greek empire at this time was in decline. The Greeks, Alexander the Great, conquered the world. right? But the Roman Empire had superseded them. The Roman Empire was now in ascendancy. But we know it won't be long. Uh, by 400, uh, the Romans are in Britain. They, they, have, to re, they have to retract because they've got to look after and try and save Rome from being sacked by the, the Goths. And then a new empire. Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. You can name them all. You can read the books. They come, they rise, they collapse and fall. And so, uh, as the Greek Empire was in decline and the Roman Empire was in ascendancy here, Paul points out to the fact that these are all set by a declared will that is accomplishing a purpose. It might not be the purpose of the, the leaders and the rulers who are seeking to uh, strengthen themselves, seeking to em enrich themselves. So on a large scale, the mass movement of people, the establishment of towns and cities and empires uh, are achieving this greater purpose uh, of God uh, more than the temporary successes of a, a group of individual nations or, uh, or of a particular individual leader. On the small scale, we can say this. Your birth, when you were born, has been determined. 
I tell a funny story. My, my mother and father uh, knew each other uh, when they were in their 20s and uh, probably should have got married then. But uh, my, my paternal grandmother uh, said to my father, don't be foolish, don't get married, you're a young man. And so off he went and uh, uh, did some other things. And then some 30 years later, they happen again to meet on a railway station up in North Wales. And they get married. And the joke is, I have cousins uh, 20, 30 years older than me, but I should have been born. I should have been as old as them. I'd nearly be, uh, well, in my 90s now. But God determined the exact time and then the exact place where we were born we had many opportunities. My father then, I give, give these personal illustrations, uh, wanted his own business, wanted to run a shop, wanted newspapers as was his trade. He'd been in that. He'd served in the army in the war. He wanted a shop and he looked at a number of little shops and, and, he, and he settled on one in, in a town called Gossainen, opposite a railway line where you would have to wash the windows twice a week to stop the coal dust. But in the purposes of God... Then to be able to come as a teenager, well, before 10, 10 years of age, to start coming, hearing the gospel, becoming a Christian at 16 years of age. Are you able, are you able to look back on your life and see that uh, the history, the time, and the, and the place, uh, there's a sense where God is working out a purpose in your life and in the life of your family and the life of the community through these things? On the small scale, your birth your, your, and your life, your death and your journey moves uh, in a direction that is fulfilling a great purpose. Those we shall see, uh, not all uh, that uh, we are all held responsible for the, the decisions that we make. And certainly the tyranny and the aggression and the mistreatment and the abuse uh, of so many who are in leadership uh, and of those who are made in God's image, that unity of, of, of humanity which is not regarded, and so people are treated as less than, well, those who have made those decisions and enacted those policies are held responsible for that. But we know that uh, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and we quoted from Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of our service uh, th- this morning, uh, this evening, that he realized that it's the Lord God who does what he wishes in the nations of the world. And so we come now then to verse 27. Uh, we read that all this is done for this purpose, so that mankind would seek him. This is what we read. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now we have encouraging verbs here. The verbs uh, look so positive. Uh, that uh, mankind is to to seek and to reach out and to find. But uh, amongst those verbs, we have that word. It's translated in my translation here, the New International Version, as perhaps. And that puts a bit of a dampener on it all. Because although in one sense Paul is saying to these Athenians, look, I've, I've come amongst you, you're very religious, They're the gods that you worship, polytheism, the multiplicity of gods. And, and even if there's a, an unknown god, you put an altar up to him, you, you seem to be seeking, you seem to be looking, but um, you're not making much headway. 
And uh, this thought then uh, is underlined that although the verbs look so positive, there is a sense where the ultimate seeking and the quest is futile. That word perhaps suggests that it might not happen, that it's not happening. Yes, there is a questing, there is an endeavouring, there, there is a looking. But it's very much as the Epicureans, some of these philosophers, you see, they considered that there was no God. If there was a God, he wasn't interested in, in the world. And uh, in one sense, all you can do is create as much happiness for yourself as you can. So, if you're someone who has a bucket list full of experiences and you're ticking them off one at a time, you, you might not realise, but you might be an Epicurean in philosophy. And we have these verbs then in, in one sense, in a sense of, of a fumbling. And this is what comes out in this word perhaps, that, that uh, they're seeking, they're, they're reaching out, they're searching, but um, they're fumbling. It's like a, a man in the dark. A man who can't see, perhaps. He can't perceive. Uh, there are things around him which he should be able to put his hand on. But he, he can't seem to reach it. He can't seem to find it. He, he, although he's searching. Well, I know Billy Graham's book, uh, Peace with God, which uh, was the main book of some of the missions that he took, took place in, uh, in London back in the 1950s, uh, talked about that we are all on a quest. And in one sense, there is this ultimate sense that, uh, as, as Augustine says, that we, we, we are restless until we find our rest in God. But in the interim, we fill it with so much other things. And so we fill our lives with so much of the experiences of this world. And there's nothing wrong with this world. God made this world and he considered it as good. But, but that's not the purpose for your existence. That's what Paul is touching upon you. That's not the purpose. And inside you, you know, although you're ticking these things off and you're saying, yeah, I've done that, you've done that, I've got a retirement now, yes, and the package is fine and everything's good, and yeah, and the children, the grandchildren, but there's, a, there's an aching void. There's an aching void the world can never fill. And in these words, then, we have this inability to obtain. Uh, Paul is on the button here. For in the Genesis account, which we've not yet mentioned, although we mentioned the expulsion from the garden, something happens that caused men and women to begin to fumble with regards to a relationship with God. It's the tragedy of human sin. But also as well, it's not all negative here because Paul says that we live and move and have our being and then he quotes, we are his offspring. And this is where he now begins to quote some of these philosophers of Greek philosophers. And uh, these are attributed quotes. Uh, one of them particularly was attributed to a, to a, by a, by a Greek philosopher, uh, to, to Zeus, who was the, the chief god of the Greeks, that we are his offspring. And what Paul does there is to pick up that quotation and to point out that it's, although a reference in its context to Zeus, actually we live and move and have our being. And the Greek word for life and living, Zoe. So we had a little granddaughter and she's called Zoe and you think that's a strange name to give a child? No, Zoe, life, living. And he's, what he's doing is pointing away from Zeus to Zoe. Life, 
Who is the creator? Who is the sustainer? Who is the redeemer? Well, he's going to come to it. As we said, wherever the conversation begins with the Apostle Paul, with these people, it always ends with the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point then, Paul returns to speak about Jesus and the resurrection, and they're going to ridicule him for that, and he's going to speak to them about judgment before he does that. But certainly, you see, he's not far from any one of us. What do we mean by that? Well, God can be observed in creation, but if you're determined that you do not see God in creation, well then, it has to be an accident. It has to be some sort of big bang, and there's no purpose and direction to it. And perhaps God might speak to you in your conscience, reminding you of right and wrong, but you say, oh, I know, that's the harsh way that I was brought up. See, my parents brought me up and told me that I, I need to break away from that, I need to be free. But inside you, you do know that there are things you say and think and do that you shouldn't do. And it's more fully revealed, and this is what Paul comes to here, to say that he lives, we can live and move and have our being because God is not far from any one of us, because in Christ Jesus, God has visited. He has dwelt among us. He has lived on this land, lived on this earth. He's lived and died and risen again. So you, you may live in a world of your own making this evening. Your own interests, your own hobbies and your own preoccupations. And it doesn't include God. It doesn't include the scriptures. It doesn't include prayer to him. It doesn't include thankfulness. You live in a world of your own making. But in reality, you're living in God's world. You wouldn't even be breathing had it not been for him as the creator. And your purpose will only truly be fulfilled when you come to know him. Whom to know is life eternal. But may God bless uh, that, uh, those thoughts of the Apostle Paul to our hearts. And may he challenge us as to whether we know him as our personal saviour.